If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to join me in the Gospel of Luke in the 15th chapter. Speaking of a God who saves, that's what the Gospel of Luke in the 15th chapter is, is all about. There is not one single instance in all of the Bible where a man or a woman came to Jesus in humility asking him to save them and he did not do it. That's good news, isn't it? Not one single instance in all the Bible where someone did not come in humble, humble repentance to be saved and God ever turned them away. Luke 15 is sort of home base for us in, uh, on these uh, Sunday mornings here in, in February. And it's in this morning that we'll turn our attention to what's often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I have to confess to you on the front end, I find that title to be a little bit unfortunate. Jesus did not call it the parable of the prodigal son. And I find it unfortunate for a few reasons because primarily it's not really a parable about one son. It's a parable about a father who has two sons. And both sons in the parable are extremely important. You ought to know on the front end that each of the sons represents a portion of the audience that was coming to Jesus in Luke chapter 15 and verse 1, where it says, now the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to Jesus. Now, if you know this parable well, you you already know that it's going to be the younger brother who's going to stand representing that portion of the audience. The sinners and tax collectors are going to be uh, represented in Jesus' story by the younger brother. But then the Bible also says there in Luke 15 too that the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling now, the older brother in this parable is going to represent them. So, so it's important, again, as we study through this, that you know and I know that, that if, while we might be more familiar with the uh, testimony of the younger brother in this story and his portion, the, the, the parable in its totality, in its entirety, in some ways actually has more to say to the older brother mentality here in Luke chapter 15. Oh, 150 years ago or so, uh, in the mid-1860s, if you were to, uh, to, uh, to, to ask the average American in those days, who's the most famous orator in all the country, they would have most likely said a man named by the, by the name rather of Edward Everett. I don't know if you've ever heard of Edward Everett or not, but at the time he was the president of Harvard College. And on a Thursday, November the 17th, 1863, at a battlefield you've probably heard of called Gettysburg, uh, a lot of people joined together because the previous July, a uh, rather significant battle uh, of the war had taken place there. And Edward Everett was invited to give the keynote address at the dedication of this battlefield. And so he came and he spoke for two hours as everybody was gathered together. Uh, following his speech, the, the, the audience erupted with applause. They sang a song, and then the man who was the president of the United States at the time, by the name of Abraham Lincoln, stood up to make a few comments. And his few comments were these. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. And we have come here to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place to those who here gave their lives that that nation might endure. And it's altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this 
ground. The, the men living and dead who struggled here have hallowed it far above our power to add or detract. No, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. But that wasn't quite true, was it? But it can never forget what they did here. And then, and then he goes on to, to, to say that, that it's our purpose now to highly resolve, right? That that nation of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And when uh, Abraham Lincoln concluded what we call the Gettysburg Address, he sat down and there was no applause. There was only sort of stunned silence. As a matter of fact, after giving the speech, Lincoln remarked that he did not think the speech had gone over very well. And then Edward Everett, the keynote speaker of the day, called up with Abraham Lincoln not long after. And he said, I should be glad, speaking to Lincoln, if I could flatter myself that I came as near to the central idea of the occasion in two hours as you did in two minutes. Now, Everett spoke for two hours, and and nobody remembers much what he said, although he did give a pretty good speech if you go look it up and read it. Lincoln spoke rather for two minutes, and it continues to resonate deeply among us today over 150 years later. Now, the point is not that all speeches or sermons should be two minutes long. That's not the point. The point is that sometimes a succinct and powerful proclamation can get to the heart of the matter with great precision. And, and what I would suggest to you, the prodigal son, or this uh, parable that Jesus speaks, gets to the very heart of the gospel with great precision. As we read it together, Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And when he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant, he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. 
And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead. Your brother was dead, rather, and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, let's pray together. And Father, I pray that you would allow the Word of God to do its work among your people this morning, that this text, inspired to the Holy Spirit, would be taught faithfully and accurately. We have great confidence in your Word. And then we also pray uh, at the same time as your word is taught that the Holy Spirit would come and bring conviction of righteousness. Um, speak truth to us as we live in an age of great deceit and, and outright lying. And we need to hear truth this morning. So I pray that you'd use this text for that purpose. Draw us to yourself through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we have observed already here that um, in Luke 15, again, two sections of the congregation, if you will, or two sections of the audience, sinners and tax collectors, they're drawing near to Jesus in Luke 15, 1. That, that Greek verb there suggests a, a, it's an ongoing verb. It means they're drawing near to him on a regular, ongoing, continuing basis, and that's really irritated the Pharisees and the scribes. And so Jesus tells a sequence of three parables to this audience. We suggested to you the parable of the lost sheep is indicative of those sinners and tax collectors who've been lost far away. And Jesus said, what shepherd of you, if he'd lost, if he had 99 sheep, does not go after the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, he rejoices, puts it on his shoulders and comes all the way home rejoicing. And then the second parable that we studied last week is the parable of the lost coin. Where's the coin lost? Not far away and not distant. The coin is actually lost in the house. And, and, and in the same way that, that Jesus is proclaiming God the Father is pursuing the, the sheep that's way out in the distance lost, he's also pursuing these Pharisees and scribes that are lost in the, in the house. You see, lostness is not a geography. Lostness is a condition. Lostness is not a place. Lost is a, a condition of the, of the heart. And who is God after? All people. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, sinners and tax collectors or self-righteous Pharisees. And, and then in this third parable, he brings the two together in one parable. And every parable that Jesus teaches has primarily one major point as it teaches us something about God. And then it also teaches us something about ourselves. So the parable of the prodigal son, if, if uh, you're kind of like me and have a brain that likes to organize things well the story has four scenes here are the four scenes and i'll go and let you know this the next four sermons all right so we're going to take a scene at a time so here are the four scenes the younger son's rebellion second the younger son's repentance third the father's restoration of the younger son and fourth the older son's resentment that's the sequence of scenes. And so if the parable of the prodigal son were a television show or a movie, those would be the four episodes or those would be the, be the four scenes. So this morning we'll look primarily at the first scene that we'll call the younger son's rebellion. And um, I've never been really good at sermon titles, but if I were to give this sermon a title, it would be the lies, L-I-E-S, the lies of the far country. Because we see in this scene that the younger son believes a sequence of lies. In fact, I'm going to give you four lies, and, and the problem with lies is they, they come in a certain order, and then they kind of compound upon one another. 
In, in other words, if you fall for the first lie, the second lie is going to be much easier to swallow. And if you follow that, swallow that second lie, it's going to lead right to the third lie that might lead right to the fourth lie. Jesus said of your enemy, Satan, he is the father of lies. And he's been lying from the beginning. Now, a simple question is, how do you know when you're being lied to? How do you know when you're being lied to? Have you ever had somebody that you trusted lie to you? You thought they were your friend. You thought that they were telling you the truth. And then a little bit of time went on. And, and, and then you realize they've been lying to me all along. You have an enemy and he lies to you. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire, and, and the goal, the goal is achieved. The goal is to get this younger son's life destroyed, his inheritance squandered, his name ruined. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus said in John 10. But I have come that you might have life. So, so let's look at the lies the younger son believes that brings him to such a desperate situation, you have to recognize and realize it was never the younger son's plan. It was not his goal to end up in with the pigs, right? We know that. He does not set off to the far country saying, I can't wait to to wallow in the mud with the pigs. Now, remember that Jesus' original audience is a Jewish audience. And for a Jewish mind, there's nothing lower than wallowing in the mud with the pigs. Nothing. So, so the end result of this younger son believing the lies is he gets himself in the worst predicament possible. So, so that's the lesson for us, is the enemy's goal for you is, is not, to, not just to harm you. Hear Jesus' word. He's come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his goal for you. And that was his goal, and it plays out here. So, so, so you say, uh, Brandon, the, you said there's four lies. Let's, let's hear them. Lie number one is this. Life is better far away from the Father. That's lie number one. Life would be better off for me far away from the Father. The young man desired to be away from his father. The Bible does not say he went a town away or a region away. Look at what it says in verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey where? Into a far country. There entered into his heart and mind the thought that life would be better off somewhere else. Home is no longer where he wanted to be. He thought life would perhaps be more exciting, more meaningful, more enjoyable. And he wanted to leave right now. He did not want to wait. He asked his dad for his inheritance right now. And a little bit more context in in those days, verse 12, when the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, in the original telling of this story, when Jesus gave that, if he'd have said that, the younger son told his father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. There have probably been a few and maybe a lot of people in the audience that their response would have been this. What? Or a, oh, it's a tremendous insult. It's a tremendous insult. The, the younger son has come up to his father and essentially said, I want you dead. Because an inheritance in those days and in that culture was what a father passed on to his child upon his, his death. 
And so the younger son has come up to him, his father, and basically said, I don't want to be around you anymore, and I don't want to just wait around here and piddle around here until you die. Can you just go in and give it to me now? And then when it says that a younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a, uh, gathered all he had, the suggestion is, is that he sort of liquidated the assets. The inheritance probably wasn't cash. It was probably land or, 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 or uh, livestock. And, 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 and so he, he, he took the property and he, and he liquidated it. The, the picture is, is that the, the, the inheritance has great value, but in order to just get some fast cash to put in his pockets, he sold it for much less than what it was valued. And, and friends, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good description of sin. That's kind of what sin is is you have a tremendous inheritance of eternal life offered to you. And yet, by and large, what we find ourselves doing, if we're not careful on a regular basis, is exchanging the blessing of knowing God for things that are so, so, so much more shallow and try to picture the younger son as he's leaving. As he's leaving and setting off for the far country, I bet he's optimistic. I bet he's... Excited, he's got plenty of money. He sets his course for the far country. He gets his GPS out and he just types in far country. And as you picture him, I want you also to picture the father watching him go. Devastated, heartbroken, watching him leave. And I want you to hold that picture for just a moment, for just a little while, because that path he's leaving on He's going he's to come back down that very same path. He's going to look a little bit different when he does come. But he's going to come back down that same path. See, the younger son believes a lie. And that he thinks freedom and life are to be found in a place. In a place. Can I give you a little hint, a little bit of secret? Here's a problem. No matter where you go, you're taking something with you. Do you know what you take with you wherever you go? You take you with you. All right. I mean, he gets to the far country and he's still got himself. Our, our, our problems are not external. Our problems are not geographical. I mean, I, I hear people, you know, particularly young people all the time, and they'll make a statement like this. I can't wait to get out of Rocky Mount, right? I want to go somewhere more exciting, somewhere more fulfilling. But the problem is life and freedom and joy and hope are not found in a place You'll never be driving down the highway. They might have named someplace Hope, or, but, but, but you'll never say, welcome to hope. Because wherever we take, wherever we go, rather, we take ourselves. Life's not to be found in a place. Life is actually to be found in a person. And the younger son just left that person behind. And he gathered all he had, again, suggesting he liquidated his assets. He, he, he'd insulted his father, and now he took the father's blessings and devalued them in order to have cash to splurge on what he wanted. So lie number one, lie number one, has ever entered your heart, ever entered your mind? I've seen it happen. been tempted with it in my own life. Life would be better off far from here. I've seen it happen. I've sat with men who looked me in the face and said, my life would be better off if I just get out of this marriage, if I just get out of here and, and, and go on. Go, go do what I want to do. They entered their heart, they entered their mind that life would be better off in some other place. Most of us have had moments where we think like the little, uh, not the little brother, the younger brother. I just want to get out of here. But here's an important principle. Under line number one, life is better far away from the Father. Here's just a principle. If you want to jot it down, When you forsake the Father's authority, 
you forfeit the Father's protection. When you forsake the Father's authority, you say, I'm out of here. Good riddance. I'm off to the far country. When you forsake his authority, you forfeit the Father's protection. I know the days in which we live. So anti-authority. And there are some authorities that are not godly authorities, but God's not one of them. (laughs) It's a little redundant to say God's a godly authority, but... But his authority in your life is not for your harm. It is very much for your good. See, we're not just all in a place. We're all also in with a condition. And if your condition with God is not right, my friends, I can assure you it doesn't really matter what place you go to. So number one, life's better off far away from the Father. That's the lie, right? That's the lie. Lie number one. And then lie number two Set up by believing the first lie. Lie number two is the pleasures of sin will last indefinitely. The pleasures of sin will last indefinitely. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Reckless living. The the old English word for that was prodigal living. That's where we get the title of the prodigal son. It's a word that means reckless, destructive. So the younger son was simply looking for, uh, for pleasure. And let's be honest, when people get in that mindset, they don't look very far ahead, do they? If all you're looking for pleasure, you're not thinking steps ahead. You're just thinking about, you're just thinking about right now. So those who buy the first lie that life's better off far away from the Father, they're in such a rush to get somewhere else that they have no foresight into where the road's actually taking them. They don't think about their, what their decisions mean for their loved ones. The dad who walks out because he thinks life's going to be better in a far country doesn't think about the effects on his children. The child who rushes off thinking life's better in the far country does not think about the heartbreak caused to the mom or the dad. They're caught up in a moment, blind to see much of anything. The verb used here is squandered. Did you see that in verse 13? And there he squandered his property. Look at that word. There's a lot of hurt behind that word, isn't there? squandered and 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 here's the reality it's not just he's hurting himself some people live in this little bubble where they think that's true they think my sin just is my sin and it doesn't really no 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 no. there's no such thing as sin that only affects you sin spreads we're warned in hebrews are we not that if you've got a root of bitterness it'll spring up and by it many become defiled Oh, it's not one of our major lies, but it is a lie to believe that my sin only affects me. John MacArthur, a preacher who I think has a lot of wisdom, he says in his book um, on the parable of the prodigal son, sin never delivers what it promises. Did you know that? That's why we call them lies. <laughs> sin never delivers what, is promised, what it promises. And the pleasurable life sinners think they are pursuing always turns out to be precisely the opposite. A hard road that inevitably leads to ruin and the ultimate, literal, dead end. And the fleeting, uh, that's the end of his quote, by the way. The fleeting momentary pleasures of sin are never worth the trade. Never worth the trade. I remember when I was a, uh, a little boy uh, in, in fourth, fifth grade and had just gotten into collecting baseball cards that I had a neighbor who had been in it for a long time and... Uh, 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 I had a Mark McGuire rookie card, which actually back then was worth a little something. I don't know if it's worth anything today. Speaking of kind of these same lies some athletes have believed. But anyway, um, he wanted to trade me a, uh, um, a 
uh, a collection of seven or eight cards for the one card, and that's how we set it up. I got eight cards, you just give me the one card. Now, in, the, in, in those days, it's like 1989, his, his little stack of cards was pretty much worthless. But I got to thinking, oh, eight cards, and I made the trade. I made the trade. I came in, and my older brother said, what have you, and I explained, he said, have you lost your mind? He traded in something valuable for something that has no value. And that's what's going on in temptation. Uh, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. What crafty, deceitful means? It tricks you. Tricks you. (laughs) The pleasures of sin will last indefinitely. Well, they seem like they will when you're on your way to to the far country. There, there is pleasure to sin, by the way. There is, or else we wouldn't obviously be tempted by it. But it's a fleeting pleasure. It's a shallow pleasure. And it's ultimately an unfulfilling pleasure. And he spent everything. It's reckless. He's, all, all the money's going out. None, no money's coming in, right? He spent it all, and there comes a time when the party's over. Now, that in itself would have been bad. If we just read, and when he spent everything, that would have been bad. But that's not all that happens. Look at verse 14. He spent everything, and then it's in that moment what happens. A severe famine arose in that country. Not just a famine, y'all. A severe famine. Uh, that Greek word talks about, man, it's bad. It's as bad as it's, as it's ever been. A severe famine arose in the country, and here's what begins to happen. And he began to be in need. Oh, poor boy. Never had, a, never had a day of need in his life. Why? Because the Father's always provided for him. You forsake the Father's authority. You forfeit the Father's provision, presence, and protection. And now he's, got, he, now he's in need. Now, he's moved from living it up to just trying to survive. Happens, doesn't it? Perhaps it's happened in your life. Perhaps it's happening in the life of someone you love. Now, here's a, here's a quiz. Here's a pop quiz question. Was this famine a good thing for him or a bad thing? And don't answer too quickly. Right. Was this famine a good thing for him or a bad thing? Now, as a brief aside, with great compassion, I want to say that it's likely that some of you this morning may find yourself in the difficult place of having a prodigal in your own family. So this is a hard lesson that I say with great compassion and prayerfully with great discernment. It's not just some throw-out statement. But I want us to listen and see carefully in the text that the severe famine was ultimately the best thing that could have happened to the younger brother. Prodigals do not need temporary famine relief. They need to come home. There's an important phrase here. He began to be in need. To put it some way, if you've got a prodigal, don't pay the rent for your prodigal in the far country. Invite him to come home. The father had already given him his inheritance, but he did not keep sending him monthly checks in the far country. Why? We're trying to get to verse 17. When he came to himself. He came to himself. When he came to himself. The the literal rendering of that Greek phrase is when he got in his right mind. You know what that's suggesting? He's been out of his mind. That happens. Happens to people. They get blinded. 
They make foolish decisions. They're living in a moment. They're not worried about consequences. And then something, a severe famine or whatever it might be, comes up on them. And then they say, what have I done? So lie number one, life's better off in the far country. Lie number two, the pleasures of sin will last indefinitely. That's not true. Bible spells it out pretty clearly. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he will reap. And again, not the major point for this, this morning, but there is a, such, a, such a thing as the law of sowing and reaping. Do you know the law of sowing and reaping? Here's the law of sowing and reaping. Number one, I'm not trying to give you too many lists today, but number one, you sow what you reap. You say, that's obvious. I mean, if you, want, if you want tomato plants, what seeds are you going to plant? Tomato seeds. I mean, you'd be out of your mind to, to want tomatoes and plant watermelon seeds and then say, what, where'd these watermelons come from? I wanted tomatoes. You sow what you reap. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever man sows, that he will reap. If he, reaps, if he sows rather according to the flesh, he'll reap according to the flesh. If he sows according to the spirit, he'll reap according to the spirit. You, you reap what you sow. Number two, you reap more than you sow. You need a little handful of seed and then boom, all this fruit comes up, right? It's not a one-to-one ratio. I don't know what the ratio is, but it's not one-to-one. You reap more than you sow. And number three, he's waking up to this here. You reap at a different time than you sow. You you don't put that seed in the ground, cover it up, put some water in. There it comes to plant. No, no, no. There's a season that goes by. And that's what he's learning. There was a season. He's living it up. He's living it up. And then the money runs out. The severe famine comes. And now I'm reaping what I've sown lie number three lie number three i can fix the mess i'm in look what he does so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs what's his first instinct his first instinct is okay i've made a mess but his first instinct is i'm going to clean it up his original plan is not to go home look that's not his original plan His original plan is, here in this verse, he went and hired himself out. He looks for work. He's saying, I'm going to work my own way out of this situation. By my own grit, by my own hard work, by my own efforts, he's going to get back on his feet. I've made a mess, I'll clean it up. And there's something in all of us that feels that way, isn't there? But then there's this other thing gnawing at him. He's longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, again, if on the front end, when he leaves, the crowd response would have been, oh, what? When we get to this point and that statement's made, they'd have said, oh, made them sick to their stomach. We've reached the bottom of the pit for the original Jewish audience again. The picture of the younger son in the fields with the pigs is as disgusting a scene as imaginable. And that's where we've gotten to the pit. Three lies all incredibly dangerous to our souls. First lie, life's better off far away from my father. Just got to get up out of here. The, the, the thought that we can just shake all this off, get away from him, life would be better off. That's not true. It's a lie. Second lie, the pleasures of sin last indefinitely. The money's not going to run out. The friends will stick with me. No, uh, uh, there's, there's, no, there's no sinful lifestyle that does not have destructive consequences. We're living in an age, I know, I know, we, we, want, we want to believe this lie so desperately in our culture that there are no consequences coming for my sin. The first consequence of sin by itself is destructive. It takes you far away from the Father. 
It's always the immediate consequence of sin. You know, as I think of those, you know what rings true in my mind? This is the exact sequence of lies that Adam and Eve believed in the garden. Life would be better off for me, far from me, far, far from here. Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? That, 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 tree, uh, that, that tree of the far country, we, we could call it here in Luke 15. Did, did God really say that? You know, life would be so much better for you if, if, you'd, if he didn't forbid you that fruit. And, 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 and it's desired to make one wise. Now, now what's happening here? The, the lies of the enemy have been the same since the beginning. He's not got any fresh lies to give you. He just repackages them, rewords them a little bit. But they're the very same lies. And, and, and there are no consequences for your action. This bit, listen to the enemy statement. You shall not surely die. That's what he said in the garden. And I think that's the lie that, that, the, far, that the younger sons believe in and the far country. The far country is a place of death. He believes it's a place of life. And, and, and then when they eat the fruit and they realize they're naked, what do they try to do? They try to fix it themselves, don't they? Same thing. Sew fig leaves together and we'll cover it. We'll, cover, we'll, make, we'll make this all right. Well, and then there's a fourth lie. And giving you the first three, and I've told you how they compound on one another, and that brings us to the final lie. And, and all lies are awful, but, but it's this fourth lie in particular that is destructive. You want to know what it is? Here's the fourth lie. My father, my father won't want me back. Lie number four. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but, but I perish here with hunger? He came to himself. He, it, it means he finally woke up. He finally realized how foolish, how self-destructive, how insulting he'd been to his father, how reckless he'd been. And he begins to formulate a plan. He says, I'm going to go back. His plan is to go back and ask his dad for a job. Isn't that what he says? He says, I'll go back. Uh, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, that's true. So he's finally getting a little bit of truth in here. But I think the enemy's fine if you get a little bit of truth as long as you still believe a little bit of lie. We want all truth. So here's his plan. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And by the way, that's the gospel of the Pharisees. That is their message that is what the scribes have declared to them, these sinners and tax collectors all your lives. You can be a hired servant of God. Keep his rules. Be a good, be a good employee. And I tell you, the father doesn't want a son back to be his employee. The father wants his son back to be his child, to be his son. He, he doesn't believe his dad will take him back, but he's willing to go back as a servant. He must be thinking, I've, I've gone too far. I've done too much. I've been too rebellious. It's just as big a lie as all the others, as we'll see in time. So, so I've given you the four lies. In conclusion, can I just state to you four truths in contrast to these lies? Life is not better far away from the Father. Anybody agree with that? Life's not better far away from the Father. In fact, life is only to be found in the Father. Secondly, the pleasures of sin do not last indefinitely. Some of us this morning might be believing that. You're caught up in a destructive pattern of sin, but, but you've not yet come to yourself. 
You've not yet awakened to it. You've not yet realized that the, the pleasures of sin do not last indefinitely. They end suddenly. And they bring tremendous consequences when they do end. Number three, we cannot fix the mess we've made. We can't fix it. Can't go back. Can't do it over. The Bible says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. We, we need somebody else to fix it. You want to hear some truth? Somebody else did come and fix it. Somebody else did come clean the mess up. The, the, the forgiveness of the Father is not, hey, I know you made a mess and we'll just move past it. No, 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 no. The forgiveness of the Father is you made a mess and he is going to come clean it up. He is going to come fix it. You ran up the debt. It's not that, all right, let's just tear it up and pretend it never happened. No, no, no. The gospel is you ran up the debt and somebody's going to come pay it on your behalf. Jesus Christ has come for you. He's the faithful shepherd. He, he's like the woman who looks, into, looks all over the house until she finds the coin because it's precious to her. It's valuable to her. And, and, and he goes to the cross and is crucified for all of our squandering and reckless living so that he can restore to us the inheritance that we squandered. We gave it up. He pays the debt. And if that, that, that in itself, y'all, would be amazing. But that's not it. We, he, we mess it up, he pays the debt, and then he gives the inheritance back to us. And I'm going to tell you, if you're in the pig pen somewhere and the enemy's whispering to you, ah, he doesn't want you back, he doesn't want you back, he doesn't want you back. Friends, he wants you back. He wants you back so much that he's going to go to the cross and be crucified to get you back. Amen? You say, no, no, I've gone, I've gone too far. No, 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 no. We sang it, the deep, deep love of Jesus. You might have a deep sin debt, but his love is deeper still. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We need somebody to fix the mess. And Christ has come to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and restore our inheritance. Truth number four, in contrast to the lie, the Father does want you back. Father does want you back. But he didn't want you back as a hired servant. He wants you back as his beloved child. So, so we've examined this first scene here. And there was a sequence of four lies. And in conclusion, before our invitation. Now, before you move on and check out, just please listen. May, may I ask you to soberly and carefully Think about the sequence of lies. I do think there's a strategy of the enemy behind the lies. So let me just ask four brief questions in connection to the four lies. Are you this morning longing for the far country? You got, you got some thoughts in your heart, your mind. Uh, again, the, the far country is not a geographical place. It's a condition of the heart. And, and you got thoughts in your mind or your heart that are, and life would be better far away from my father far away from, from, from his word, far away from obedience. <laughs> um, I have found in my experience that the lies of the far country are appealing to me when I view myself as his hired servant and not as his beloved son. I think the enemy preys on people who've begun to, dis- to define their relationship with God as a hired servant. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. They're not happy, they're grumbling. 
saying he receives sinners and, and eats with, with them. Have you got any longing in your heart for the far country? Would you be sober-minded and believe on the front end so you don't have to experience on the back end? Because I can stand here today, what is it, February the 1st, 2015, and if you've got a longing to the far country, I can say with assurance, backed up by the word of God, the far country always, 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 only a matter of time before it ends with the pigs. 100% of the time. So, so fight the lies of the far country with the truth of God's word. Secondly, are you currently in the far country? You can be here this morning. Again, because the far country is not a place out there. It's a place in the heart. Uh, are, you, are you this morning in the far country squandering your inheritance, thinking the money won't, come out, won't run out, rather, and that no famine will come? Again, please... With great compassion, but with great urgency, I tell you, when you forsake the Father's authority, you forfeit the Father's protection. Third, perhaps you're in the fields of the far country, hiring yourself out in a fruitless effort to fix things. You're you're stuck in that. I made a mess. I recognized a mess. I thought the pleasures of sin were going to last indefinitely. They didn't, and now I'm here longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate and i can tell you uh don't settle for the pods the pigs are eating when the fattened calf is on the table for you don't say i'm gonna get the pigs you've got a father who wants you back don't hire yourself out in a fruitless effort to fix things Uh, number four are you joyfully loving and serving the father not as a hired servant but as a beloved son or daughter when it comes to serving the Lord, do you view it, do you view it in the way that this, uh, this younger brother would view serving his father once he's come home? Because that's the story. Those are the questions I wanted to ask in anticipation of the invitation. So, so in the room, you've got to find yourself in the story. Remember, the parable is not just some nice little story. All right, it's, you know, you're in the parable somewhere. Every parable Jesus teaches, it teaches us something about God, and then it teaches us something about ourselves. And we're in one scene, and maybe this isn't your scene yet, but you're going to be in one of these scenes, the scene of the younger son's rebellion. Believing, drawn to the, to, to the lies of the far country, or you're in the far country right now, thinking the money's not going to run out, or you're in the pig, <laughs> pig pen, trying to hire yourself, trying to fix it, or you're joyfully, joyfully loving and serving the Father. Let's stand together. And we're going to pray together. I invite you to bow your heads and pray together. The invitation's wide open. The invitation is, again, not about geography. It's about, it's about condition of the heart. About condition of the heart. The invitation, the invitation we talk about, heart matters. And so when, as we sing together, as we proclaim in song the gospel together. I'd invite you to think soberly about the things we've discussed. And respond accordingly. Perhaps that's to to kneel here at the front and pray. Perhaps you've got a burden you want to share. Perhaps you've got a prodigal in your life. Your son, your daughter, they're in the far country and you want to cry out to God that they come to themselves. That you cry out to God that, that he give you grace to, to realize the severe famine is sometimes what it takes. And when that comes, that you'd have grace to, 
to approach the situation with great discernment and compassion. Father, we plead for grace that even as we enter the invitation, you make us prayerful, God. Give us grace to be prayerful, to to think carefully about these matters. And also, Father, to rejoice, to rejoice that you do not call us home to hire us as a servant. You call us home to restore us as a child, as a son, as a daughter. Use your word to bring what we need this morning. Lead our time of invitation in Jesus' name. Amen.